We all know hard times will come. The question is, how do we respond when they happen? There are two characters in the Old Testament, Ezekiel and Daniel, whose stories will give us some encouraging examples. Hi, I'm Yvonne Prent, and welcome to Bible 805. In the midst of unimaginable challenges, we'll see how they didn't whine, they faithfully worked, their lives became a witness, and the wonder of God was then revealed to and through them. Our podcast today will show you exactly how this happened. Now, first of all, here's the setting. Time has run out. After hundreds of years of warnings and challenges, it's over for Judah. Like Israel before them, they're about to be conquered and deported from their land. Last week, we looked at how Habakkuk questioned how God could use an evil nation, Babylon, who was just as bad as Assyria to do the punishing, and then how God answered his questions by saying he all had it under control. Habakkuk trusted him, and now we're going to see how others reacted. Now, while Habakkuk was praying and questioning, God sent the prophet Jeremiah to preach to the people and to tell them that judgment was certain now. They had no opportunity for it not to happen, but what they needed to do is they needed to submit to the Babylonian conquest. Now, the two men that we're talking about today, Ezekiel and Daniel, they did exactly that. They did what Jeremiah told them to do. And so what we're going to look at as we look at their lives, we'll first look a little bit about their stories. Now, let me just say, starting out, uh, Ezekiel and Daniel are two really heavy-duty books. Um, Many, many volumes have been written about both of them, and we could literally spend this entire year just studying these books. So we are going to go over them fairly quickly, but this is part of a re- overview, a year-long overview of the entire Bible, and I do want to give you the most important parts of it, and even in many ways more important than the content is some applications, some really important lessons that we can learn from their lives. Now let's just again put them in historical in their historical setting. Josiah had been the last really good king. He was wounded in battle. He returned to Jerusalem where he died. Then his son Jehoahaz, and don't even try to remember these names, they're not important, um, was placed on the throne. He only lasted about three months. And then the pharaoh from Egypt, who was in control of the whole area, deposed him and put his son in place. His son was a man named Jehoiakim. Now, after this, Nebuchadnezzar becomes the big ruler on the scene. He's from Babylon. He, he The Babylonian army had conquered Assyria. Now, he comes to Jerusalem, and he makes it very clear that he is in charge. What he does first, though, and the Babylonians did this, rather than just conquer this city, he would much rather leave them alone and take all their treasures which he did. He took a whole lot of their treasures, and he also did what was called the first deportation. Daniel and his friends were taken to Babylon at this time, along with the king. Nebuchadnezzar then put Jehoiachin on the throne, and he only lasted about three months.
response. And he did various things that made Nebuchadnezzar really angry. So he comes back and he deposes him, puts a man named Zedekiah on the throne, and then he has a second deportation of captives to Babylon. Ezekiel was taken at this time. Now, Zedekiah reigned 11 years, and then he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, which was a really, really dumb thing to do. And at that time, Nebuchadnezzar says, I've had it, it's over. He goes to Jerusalem, he slaughters everyone in the city He who didn't flee and uh, surrender to the Babylonians, which is what Jeremiah told them to do. If they did that, they were okay. If they stayed and rebelled, they were killed. Zedekiah, who did not listen to Jeremiah's warning after warning, he tries to flee, which was, of course, impossible. Nebuchadnezzar's army overtakes him. They capture him. They bring him to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has his sons and all of his royal court slaughtered before his eyes, then puts out his eyes and takes him in chains to Babylon. He goes back to Jerusalem and utterly destroys it. He destroys the city. He destroys the temple. He destroys everything in it. And this happened, the prophets, then Jeremiah, who was still living and who saw all this because the people disobeyed God. Now, we're going to leave the history and we could talk more about Jeremiah, but you can listen to the to the previous podcast on him. But let's look now at both Ezekiel and Daniel. These were two young men, again, who were taken at different times, deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. And it was kind of interesting how this came about because this was basically a policy of Babylon. It was different than other nations at the time who many would just come in and either totally slaughter a place or or, you know, just do whatever. But what they did is they intentionally took as captives leaders and the young potential leaders of a nation. They took them to Babylon not to be captives, not to throw them in jail, but they actually trained them as civil servants and leaders in Babylon. Now, they did this for several reasons. This removed all of the leaders who could potentially rebel against them, and it also increased the strength of the Babylonian Empire. They basically took the best of the best from the different nations they conquered and put them into their own service. And the system worked actually really, really well, Uh, particularly as we'll see with Daniel. He became one of the highest and most skilled civil servants in the empire. Now, let's look at both of their lives, and we're going to look at four ways that you can respond to this really life-changing, astounding situation where you're taken as a young person to a completely different nation. You don't know the language. You don't know anything about it. And I've identified four ways that you can respond. You can be a whiner, you can be a worker, you can be a witness, or you can be a wonder. Now, first of all, let's talk about whining. Now, for many of us, and I confess I'm in this category, a natural response when things happen is we want to whine. Why did this happen to me? Why me? God, why are you beating up on me? And there are many false assumptions that even Christians have when bad things happen. And they include things like, God hates me. God's punishing me. This is a disaster. All of these things are wrong. I don't deserve it, etc., etc. But these sorts of accusations against God can be completely false. If you've been listening to the podcast and reading your Bible, you know that sometimes 
the people that God honored the most were the ones that were tested the most severely. Job is the primary example of this. When all the hosts of heaven appear before God and Satan is among them, God says to Satan, have you observed my servant Job? There is no one like him in the land, a man who is upright and godly. And God is saying all these great and wonderful things about Job. And it's then that Satan says, well, of course, you know, he's going to serve you. You've given him everything. And that's when God allows Satan to test him. Now, Job was not tested because he sinned because God was punishing him, any of these things that we immediately accuse God of, he was actually honoring Job. And I know a lot of times it doesn't seem like it when we're in the midst of something tough, but that is a biblical reality. And also, too, when we look back, just listen to last week's lesson again with Habakkuk, sometimes we're caught up in a bigger picture of God's plan, but God can still take care of individuals, still treats his people as individuals, no matter what the situation. Now, if we're in difficult situations and it isn't our fault and we're caught up in something bigger than ourselves, sometimes we feel like we have a right to complain. Well, I just don't like what's going on and I don't have anything to do with it and, you know, etc., etc. But we don't have a right to complain. God is God. We are creatures. He is God. He can do what he wants to. Now, what are some anecdotes to whining? Well, in Habakkuk, we learn that he cried out to God, but then he humbly waited for his answers, and he trusted him. Now we're going to look at how did Ezekiel and Daniel respond. What's astounding about both of them is how completely they submitted to their situation. We don't ever see them whining. We don't ever see them questioning why this happened to them. They don't either refuse to do what God asked them to do. Now, there are plenty of examples of in the Bible, and we see it in our lives all the time, of people complaining. God wants them to do something. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I mean, even some of the great heroes of the faith started out as whiners. Uh, Moses, great example. One of the, the greatest of the Old Testament individuals started out going, nope, not me, God. Nope, nope. Call my brother. I don't want to do it. I can't speak. I can't do that. So if you start out whining, that doesn't disqualify you from serving God. But you need to catch yourself and stop, confess it is sin, and go on with the work that he calls you to do. In Philippians 2, uh, 14 and 15, there's a great New Testament verse that tells us how to act in every situation. It says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. You see, the default pattern of our world is to complain. And some people say, well, oh, I just have to say this. Well, no, you don't. A lot of times when you verbalize something, your bad attitude gets locked in, and then also you pollute others with your bad attitude. The Bible tells us in everything, give thanks. And whether you feel like it or not, I really encourage you to make that a habit. When things are tough, just say, thank you, God. Thank you that you're in control. Thank you that even though I can't see the reason, you know the reason. And remember again, and I, I've said this many times in, in my, my podcasts and lessons, 
the verse that tells us to, in everything, give thanks, it doesn't say for everything. We can't always be thankful for what happened, but we can thank God in everything. And next, be filled with hope and expectation. Don't bail out. You never know what might happen. Let me just give you two other biblical stories. Well, first a biblical story and then um, one from the secular world. Because you never, never know what God might be in the middle of. And if you quit too soon, you'll miss out on it. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is after Jesus rose from the dead, but the disciple didn't know that he'd risen yet, there are some disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, and then Jesus joins up to them. And it says that that they were hidden from seeing who he really was at first. And they're going along talking, and they're talking about what's happened in Jerusalem, and Jesus asks them about it. And they say, don't you know, you know, we were really hoping that Jesus was going to be the Messiah, but, and then the greatest line in this story, they go, but it's been three days. And I would imagine that there was, there had to be a part of Jesus that was just kind of going, <laughs> you know, he had to be laughing. He just somehow had to be laughing inside because what they saw as, oh my goodness, it's three days. He told them a long time ago, he's going to only be dead three days, and then he's going to rise again. And there he was. And they apparently didn't give in to despair. They go on, they sit down for a meal, and then they realize who he is. But so often, we're in a position where we go, but it's been three days, and we're ready to bail out when that's just when God is ready to do something. There's another story that I want to tell you. I heard this recently. My husband and I were at the Global Leadership Summit, which is such a wonderful thing, and I would would highly recommend anyone go to it. But the television um, adventure star, Bear Grylls, was on it, and he told a fantastic story of not quitting too soon. He was um, in this horrifically difficult training to be a British Ranger. And he had already failed the training once. He'd been kicked out. He couldn't make it. He couldn't cut it. But he came back. Try again. And there were, at this point in the training, there were still, I think there was something like, I can't remember the exact number, something like um, eight men left. And um, four of them had uh, failed before. So they were trying again. He said they got to this um, this particular place in the training. It was right near the end, and it was one of the most horrible things he'd ever been through. They had to, it was it was raining and it was muddy and it was the weather was absolutely horrible. And they had to climb over this mountain, this huge mountain. They had had to do that, and then they knew though at the end of that mountain there were going to be trucks that would then take them to where they could get a meal and a shower and rest. I don't know how many days it took to do that. Well, they come over the mountain, they see the trucks, they think, we've made it, we've made it. And just as they're about to get to the trucks, they drive away. And the message comes to them, go back over the mountain, and there the truck will meet you. At that point, it was either three or four of the men said, we're done, it's over, we quit. They bailed out, they left, they dropped out of the training. Just after they dropped out and the remaining group started back over the mountain, the trucks came back again. Four of the men that were still there had been ones that had failed in the past. 
That was their final test. And though it might seem cruel of the trainers, that final test showed them, not only to the trainers, not only to the people watching them, what they were made of, but it showed the men themselves what they were made of. We don't ever know what we can do until we're literally pushed to the limits. And Ezekiel and Daniel were in those situations. Now let's look a little bit more at what they did. Instead of whining, they got to work. They did jobs, which we will discuss in more detail in a minute. But there's always something to do. There's always something that we can do, something positive, something God-ordained, no matter what our situation, no matter where we are. We need an eternal perspective. I've talked about this so often, and you'll hear me talk about it again and again, to all of our work. One quote by C.S. Lewis, I think is it really applies on this. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, they have become so ineffective in this one. But Daniel and Ezekiel, they had a vision larger than just their present circumstances, and so they got to work. Now, Daniel and his friends, they became civil servants. They did the very best at their jobs. Now, it started out, and we assume that they were actually very young teenagers at this point. They were taken into the king's court, and they were given all this rich food and wine, and Daniel and his friends just very politely said, mm, no, we can't, we can't do this. Um, Daniel in Daniel it says that he said please test your servants for 10 days give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see so the man that was in charge of them agreed and tested them at the end of 10 days they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food so the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And then this is a great verse. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Now God gave them those abilities, but they had to put them to work. Now let's look at Ezekiel. He was a priest, and he was called to be a prophet. He was of a priestly family when he was taken to Babylon, and apparently served in that capacity. Now Daniel was at the palace. They were there at, at the same time. Daniel got there a little bit earlier, but they were there at the same time. Daniel was at the palace. Now Ezekiel was among the people. He was called, though, to a special prophetic ministry at age 30. And God told him when he called him, he kind of gave him a warning I'm asking you to do this, but it's not going to be really fun. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been revolt against me to been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, 
for they are rebellious people. They will know that a prophet has been among you. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you, and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or be terrified with them, though they are rebellious people. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they'll re- they are rebellious. He preached for about 20 years, and he wasn't tremendously successful. We don't ever hear of the people going, oh yeah, Ezekiel, right, yeah, oh, that's, oh that was a good sermon. That was just fantastic. Um, you know, two thumbs up or 2,700 likes for you. We don't get any of that. He continued to preach, though, and do what God asked him to do. Now, for both of them, As a result of them not whining and working, they then became strong witnesses. And people came to them. If you are faithful in what you are doing, you never know what situations are going to come up. Now, they may not always be the most pleasant ones. In fact, they can be tremendous tests. Let's look back now at Daniel and his friends. First of all, Daniel has the opportunity to tell the king not only the meaning of a dream that he has, but also he interprets it for him. This is the first dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, and it's of this huge statue, and it has four parts, and it basically represents the different kingdoms that are going to come after him. Well, Nebuchadnezzar really likes the interpretation of this because it shows that he's great and powerful and wonderful, but he lets the power go to his head, and Nebuchadnezzar decides he wants to be worshipped. So, we uh, then this scene shifts to out somewhere in the country of Babylon and the reason we know that is Daniel isn't there Daniel's still in the capital but it's out to where his friends are serving and Nebuchadnezzar builds this huge statue and he decides that everyone has to bow down to him as if he's a god well at that time uh Daniel's three friends are out there, um, and they won't bow down to it. And so they're all brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, I'm going to give you one more chance. If you don't bow down to this statue, you're going to be thrown alive into the fiery furnace. And Daniel's friends answer in this way. They say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand and then this is this is the most extraordinary expression of faith they go on though to say but even if he does not we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up and so he throws them into the fire and they're not burned And then there's one more, not only that, but one more person joins them in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. What Nebuchadnezzar saw in the fire with the three men was what is known as a theopony. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. Jesus was there with them. And remember, that isn't just something for the fiery furnace. Remember when he gave the great commission where we're to go into all the world and share the gospel, he ended that by saying, and I'm going to be with you always. Again, fiery furnace or daily walk along, wherever you're at, 
Jesus is with you. Now, let's continue in Daniel a little bit. There's a really interesting story, and a lot of people miss this, but um, one pastor that I had, it was great, he describes this as a first gospel track. It's in Daniel 4, and this, the character that's speaking switches to Nebuchadnezzar himself. And he starts out this way, he says, To the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And take some time to read that story if you haven't read it. It's just fascinating because Nebuchadnezzar goes on to talk about how he had a dream and it really troubled him. And then he goes to Daniel to find out the interpretation of it. And Daniel says, oh, king, I wish it was about somebody else. But he says what's going to happen is this dream shows that in a period of time, don't know how long, your sanity is going to be taken from you and you will be like a beast of the fields and you will wander about until you acknowledge that God is God. And it happened. It says sometime later that Nebuchadnezzar was out on one of the terraces of his palace and and he's saying something like, I did all this, this is all about me, aren't I wonderful? And God just strikes him down. And he is driven from the palace. It says he becomes like one of the wild animals until one day his sanity is restored to him. He humbles himself. He comes back and he basically writes this gospel tract and he publishes it to the entire known world of the time. So we never know how God is going to use us in interacting with people. Now, Nebuchadnezzar dies Daniel continues to be faithful. Nebuchadnezzar's son comes to the throne, and he doesn't follow along in the footsteps of his father. One night when he's having this absolutely drunken party, um, using the vessels actually from the temple to drink out of and just having this riotous time, a hand appears on the wall. And it starts writing, just this disembodied hand, and it says, Meeny, 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 tikal, parson. And the people all panic, and you know, what is this? What is this all about? And then the king at that time, his name is Belteshazzar, his mother comes in, who was obviously married to Nebuchadnezzar, and she remembers how Daniel um, was able to tell the meaning of things like this, and she says, we'll call for Daniel, he'll know what this is all about. And then Daniel just says to him, he says, these are what the words mean, mine, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end, tikal. You have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And so he just says, it's over for you, buddy. And he says, you didn't repent like your father. And this is what's going to happen. The biblical account goes on and it's verified by history that that very night, the Medes and the Persians conquer Babylon. And their very brief reign on the world stage is over. Babylon falls there's this huge political upheaval. Now, Daniel lives through it. He, he lives a very, very long life. Life goes on, and Daniel, again, is 
basically he's one of the civil servants that they consider too valuable to put out of office. He continues to serve. And it goes on in Jan- Daniel 6 to say, It pleased Darius, who was the ruler, to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And so what they did, they did this kind of sneaky thing, is they go to the ruler and say, um, Your Majesty, we want you to do this edict, and the law of the Medes and the Persians was absolute, it can never be revoked, that if anyone prays to any god, any entity, any anything in the next 30 days, that they will be cast into the lion's den. Well, the ruler was a little bit, well, I don't know, he, he wasn't even thinking. He goes, oh yeah, that's fine, let's go ahead and do that. Yeah, that sounds great. You know, well, then they realized, he didn't realize till later that Daniel would pray every day three times and this didn't deter him a bit. It said every day he went up to his window, he opened the windows and he prayed three times. And they caught him, of course. They dragged him to the king and they said, you know, look, this is what this guy did. Now, keep in mind, you know, some of the pictures of Daniel, he's this young guy in the lion's den. No, by this time he was an old man. He had served through the reign of numerous kings, literally a number of entire national governments. I would imagine that, you know, about this time he's thinking, you know, when he'd been appointed to a nice cushy job and he's thinking, Oh, you know, maybe I can kinda of rest a little bit. But we're never too old to be challenged and never too old for testings. Remember, if you're a believer, you're an eternal being. Well, we all are. It's just some of us will spend eternity with God and some of us in utter darkness. But you are an eternal being. Age really doesn't matter. And if God is still testing you, he's still using you. He has things for you to do, a witness for you to be. Well, he's thrown into the lion's den and the king really felt bad about it. It says he didn't sleep, he didn't have any entertainment, whatever. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near to the den, he called to Daniel, and in an anguished voice said, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continuously, been able to rescue from the lions? And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted up from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Now, here's where the biography of Daniel ends, and then um, it shifts to the wonder of his revelations, which we'll talk about in a minute, but now let's jump to Ezekiel and look at the work that he did, and then as he functioned as a witness. Now, as a witness, he was called to be a watchman, very, very specifically. And the message, the call is repeated both in chapters 3 and 33, where God says to him, Son of man, 
I made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them a warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sins, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways, and they do not do so, they will die for their sin, though you yourself will be saved. Ezekiel preached to the captives. He was a faithful watchman, and he also preached and gave God's warnings to the surrounding nations. Now, Let's look at the type of watchman that he was. Here's the situation. The people in Babylon were in captivity because of their sins, but what's really sad is they didn't repent and accept it. They kept asking for deliverance from their situation. They wanted Jerusalem to be spared, and they kept thinking, oh, it's all, all going to get better. We're going to go back home really soon, and everything will be okay. And Ezekiel reminded them, no, no, no. The sins that brought them there were terrible. And the, the book of Ezekiel, if you haven't read it yet, it has some really gross chapters. You're thinking, this is in the Bible. Ugh. I'm not even going to repeat them. But he describes their sins in really graphic, horrible terms. And he says, God is going to judge you for this. And the surrounding nations will also be judged. Now, Ezekiel not only had this strong message, but he was an extremely creative communicator. He preached. He counseled when people came to him to ask questions. He acted out many living sermons. He ate famine food, he didn't speak, he laid on his side to illustrate the siege of Jerusalem. All kinds of really active lessons. Probably the most living lesson that was, well, no doubt the most difficult, is his wife died. He told the people in the morning, he says, God has told me my wife is going to die. And she did. And God also said, you are not to mourn for her, as is typical in mourning, because the people will be taken out of Jerusalem, and they will not even be able to mourn. And sometimes, the lesson that we learn from this is sometimes God uses our lives, and sometimes really difficult things in them, to teach other people. You're supposed to live how God, we all are supposed to live, how God wants us to live, no matter how difficult it might be. And we never know what people are watching, what they're looking at. A New Testament example of this is in 2 Corinthians 1.3 where it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our trials so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive of God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope is for you, and our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Some additional applications from this, don't ever judge others for what they're going through. Don't condemn them. Don't say that, oh, God is punishing them. You don't know. Whenever you see a brother or sister going through something difficult, pray that they will accomplish God's purposes in it.
Now, if you're going through suffering, or just even in your regular life, like Ezekiel, God asked him to do different things, don't worry about people thinking that you're weird or judging you or whatever. That's going to happen. If you live as a Christian, if you live according to biblical values in our world today, people will think you are strange, and you will be. You won't fit in. But you will be honored by God in everything that you do. Someone gave me this advice years ago, and it's so good. Always just play to an audience of one. Just to God. Just to please Him. Because it really doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Now, these two men, they didn't whine. They worked. They served as a witness. And finally, the wonder came into their lives. Both were given absolutely glorious visions. First of all, here I'm going to talk about Ezekiel. After the way the book starts is the glory departs from the temple. God could not stay in the temple at Jerusalem because so much sin had permeated it in the nation, and the glory departs. But then, in the final chapters of his book, the glory returns. And if Ezekiel hadn't been faithful through all of the difficult times, he wouldn't have seen this. He gives this final glorious, wondrous description of a future temple. Now there's been all kinds of Bible commentary inks built on the topic of, is this allegorical or is it a literal description? We don't know. Now, one of the things, but we know it is going to be absolutely wonderful. Now, one of the things, though, that uh, helped me kind of understand this, I want you to think about this for a minute. When I was younger, before I had been to the Grand Canyon, couldn't wait to get to the Grand Canyon. Our family was going to be going there, and I'd looked at pictures of it, and I'd read descriptions of it, and I thought I knew exactly what it was going to look like. Now, we were coming from Colorado, which there were high mountains and then deep valleys, and for for some reason, I thought for it to look like that, we would have to get up to some really high mountain. So here we are driving towards the Grand Canyon. And, and some of you, if you've been there, you'll know exactly what this means. And we're, we're driving along. And I keep thinking, well, when are we going to get to this high place where this there's this deep canyon? And then I can still remember where we came around this one curve. And it was completely flat. I mean, there was like nothing was there. And I'm thinking, you know, when's, the, you know, when's it going to happen? We come around this corner. And there it is. And it was absolutely awe-inspiring. There it was. It was a canyon. <laughs> and it was huge. And it, even though I recognized it from the pictures, even though I had heard all about it, it was not like anything I can imagine. And I have a very strong feeling that much about heaven and the final events of our world will be very much like that. We'll sort of recognize them from the descriptions, but they won't be anything like what we can imagine. But regardless of how we um, understand this final section in Ezekiel, he ends up with this statement that is the most important thing, where he says, And the name of the city from that time on will be, The Lord is here. And that's what's the most important thing about it. Now, Daniel, back to Daniel, he lived longer than Ezekiel. He lived through the entire story of the captivity from the first deportation until the people went through, went back to the land. It says in Daniel 6.4 that he prospered during the reign of Darius and of Cyrus, and Cyrus was the one who commanded that they go back to the land. He saw 
all of the prophecies come true, from the prophecies of judgment to the prophecies of the return. Then the rest of the book of Daniel goes into his great prophecies, and we're, we just really don't have time to go into all of them. There's tons of books and all kinds of things about them. Some of them have to, many of them, in fact, the majority of them have to do with the near future of his people, and some of them are really easy to understand, like his prophecies about Alexander, where it talks about the rise of Alexander's kingdom, and then how it will be broken into four parts. And it's, it was so accurate and so precise that um, history tells us that when Alexander came to Jerusalem to conquer it, the priests of the city go out to meet him and said, well, we've been expecting you, and here's why. And they show him the prophecy of Daniel, and Alexander was so impressed with it that he said, okay, you know, I'm not going to bother you. And he kind of goes on his way and, and doesn't really conquer the city. But um, so some of them are, are very near and very specific. And then there's ones of the coming of Jesus down to the very day of when he would appear in Jerusalem. And then some are of the very far future, and they're not so easy to understand. But the message overall is that God is in control now and forever. And I love how the book ends in January 12. This is one of my favorite verses where it kind of sums a lot up where it says, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now that word wise is the Hebrew word. Actually, it's kind of a whole phrase, sakal, and it's a word that, that both encompasses those who know God's word and those who live according to it. And then the additional phrase, those who lead many to righteousness, that you can do by not whining, by being a worker and a witness. And then you will reflect the wonder and glory of God to all around you. So what the book does is it really ends with a promise that many of you, and I know so many of you who are listening to this, really fall into this category. You're wise because you study God's word. You work to live by it. And through your lives and your prayers and maybe a quiet witness in ways you can't even imagine, you are leading many to righteousness. And then the promise to you, as it is in the book of Daniel, is that you, no matter what your trials, tribulations, the hard times, the questions, whatever, that you will shine like the stars forever and ever. That's all for now. Please check out the notes for this lesson and other materials on www.bible805.com. And please do subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss any of this series of the Old Testament. We're going to be getting into some really neat books and discussions shortly, and then we'll be going into the New Testament. Please also tell your friends about it. Please share this on social media and let them know about it. Let them know so that they too can be wise and lead many to righteousness. Now until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are in your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.